Welcome to the Grace Fellowship Church of Ephrata podcast. Our desire is to help you grow in your journey with Jesus, no matter where you are. For more information, please check out our website at www.gfchurch.net. Last week talked about what our vision is as a church uh, this upcoming year. What is it that we as a mission are going to work together on? And we talked about loving where we live. We want to be one who is active. We're aware of what's going on. We're visible in our town. We're finding ways to minister to needs and not be hidden away in a building at 822 Point View Ave. We want to be a church that loves where we live. We feel we're responsible responsible for it. And we took a look at that out of Nehemiah, the first four verses in Nehemiah, where he saw Nehemiah hears about the conditions of Jerusalem and he's devastated at what he has heard so much that he weeps and he mourns. Uh, That means he felt a level of compassion and responsibility. And we're going to see today the next step in that journey that he didn't just sit there and cry. Something else happened after that. Now, Her name was Alex Scott. Alex Scott was an inspiration to me for many years, and some of you may know her as I get into her story. Alex Scott, when she was born, it was not long after she was born, she was found to have something called neuroblastoma cancer. Uh, The doctor looked at her and said, if she survives, she's probably not going to be able to walk. Two weeks after the doctor said this, she took first steps. So this was a sign of things to come for Alex Scott. Alex Scott was amazing. She was just courageous. Uh, By the time she was four, she was still struggling with the cancer she had. Uh, And uh, when they were taking her her in for one of her surgeries that she was having to have, uh, she looked at her mother and she said, Mom, when I come out of this surgery, I want to start a lemonade stand that I'm going to raise money for childhood cancer. And of course, her mom's like, oh, that's so cute. That's wonderful. Didn't think much of it. She goes into surgery. She comes out of surgery fine, uh, still obviously struggling with cancer. And she does exactly what she said. She set up a lemonade stand out front of their house, just out in the Philadelphia area, to raise money for childhood cancer. Well, people would come up. They'd see this little girl's lemonade stand, and she would tell them why she was doing it. And they were moved, like, and what she was doing. They just thought, yeah, that's really cool, you know? And, and they would tell other people, and, and lo and behold, other people started to approach the family and say, hey, can we do a lemonade stand, and it will go to the, her hospital? Well, let me say this. Her first lemonade stand raised $2,000 for her hospital. She's only four, $2,000. People begin to set up Alex's lemonade stands in their neighborhoods all around And this sort of took off. And for several years, more and more uh, locations popped up. Money was being raised for childhood cancer. Alex turned seven, and she was getting to her final days. She was not beating the cancer. She was weak. And yet there was a news interview with her in which she said that her goal that year was she was going to raise $1 million for childhood cancer research. And so through that last year that she was alive... She died uh, just one year after that at age eight. She had raised $1 million for cancer research. She's eight. Eight years old. Had a tenacity and a desire to do something amazing and did. 
Alex's lemonade stand, you will see from time to time, like if you go to Wawa or something, you'll see something that will have an Alex's lemonade stand marker on it, or restaurants sometimes have Alex's lemonade stand. It is all a part of what this little girl started at age four. Last year alone, they raised $50 million. The year before that, $52 million. It's an amazing organization, all started by a vision a little girl had. You may say, why on earth are we starting of this story of this little girl? Well, I'll tell you one thing. This little girl did something that I haven't been able to do in my life, raise a million dollars. I'm 48, and I couldn't raise a million dollars or haven't raised a million dollars. Some of us still sit here today and think, God can't use me. God is done using me. My time is up. Or we just haven't really thought about how God might use you. And that's where it's important for us to talk and take a look at Nehemiah and talk about this thing called vision, a God-inspired vision. As I mentioned in Nehemiah 1 last week, he hears that the walls of Jerusalem are in shambles. They're not being built. Jerusalem is vulnerable to outside enemies. The temple is vulnerable to being ransacked. And he weeps. And it's not just one day that he weeps. Wednesday night... At prayer meeting, we talked about the following verses where you see a prayer of lament, where he weeps before God, he confesses his sin, he confesses the sin of his fathers. He didn't even live in Jerusalem. We don't believe he ever lived in Jerusalem his whole life. He was probably born in exile. And as a result, he still feels this compassion and feels some level of responsibility and ownership of this, and he's weeping for it and asking God, God, forgive us of our sin. Have, have compassion on Jerusalem. And this all led him to certain things. You see, in verse 11, which is the first one I want us to look at, verse 11 of uh, chapter 1, uh, as we end the chapter, he finishes up this prayer of lament. And he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of the servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Huh? Who? This man. And then he pauses. It's a little side note to end this chapter. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. First off, I'm going to talk about this first part. Success I have underlined up there. I asked this on Wednesday night at prayer meeting. Have any of you ever asked God for success or blessing? And, and if you did, did you ever feel uncomfortable about doing that? Depending on what the motivation is behind it, I think that's been something for me that's sometimes a struggle because I feel like it's selfish. I don't ask God for success. I ask for his will to be done. Nehemiah doesn't do that. Nehemiah says, I'm asking for success, God, because I know this honors you and it glorifies you. I'm asking you for success in the sight of this man. And you'll see more of that in just this, uh, the next few verses we'll talk about. It. And then he adds that whole line at the very end. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now if you just picked up Nehemiah for the first time, you wouldn't have known who on earth this guy was other than a random guy who lived a long time ago. Now he talks about that he was the cupbearer to the king. The cupbearer was a very important individual in Persia. Uh, the cupbearer uh, was basically, in some cultures, was almost like the vice president. This was the right-hand man of the king. Now, this is a Persian king. He doesn't fear the God of the Bible. He worships multiple other gods. 
And here is Nehemiah, one who does worship the God of the Bible, has worked himself up to this position of prominence. Uh, think of this. A lot of times the cupbearer, one of the things they would do is they would drink from the cup of the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. They would drink from it to make sure. They would give their life so that the king would not die. That's a, he has the king's life, if you think of it, in his hand. That's some high-level responsibility. The best, the best parallel I can think of today would be he would almost be like the Secret Service. Uh, the Secret Service is devoted to giving their life to protect the president. They will die before they will allow a president to die. And that's what it was with, with Nehemiah. He, as a uh, God-fearing Jew, was able to work himself up. God had blessed his life that he has got the very king's life in the palm of his hands, if he so wished. Think of that. How amazing is that? The trust that was there. He was the cupbearer of the king. He had some high responsibility. This was not some menial job given to any servant or slave because a servant or slave may say, I don't like this guy. I will let him die. Nehemiah was not that person. He, th he thrived. In a heathen society, he thrived. Verse 2 we want to get into. We're going to take a look at a good bit of verse 2, or chapter 2, excuse me. Chapter 2, starting verse 1, says this. In the month of Nisan, that is not a car, for those of you that remember Nisans. Okay, or wait, Nisans are still around. What am I talking about? Centuries. Okay. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, pause for a moment. This means nothing to us because we don't go by the Hebrew calendar. We go by the Gregorian calendar. What comes out of this is this. From the time that Nehemiah heard about the walls and he begins to weep and mourn and fast, four months has passed. He did not immediately run into things and go into the king and do what he's about to do. He prayed and he fasted for four months and he was still distraught over this in four months, you're going to see. Uh, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year uh, of uh, King Artaxerxes, goes on and says, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, one thing that was noted in some of the commentaries is that the Persian kings, one of the ways they showed how powerful and how rich they were, they liked to have drinking parties. That's basically what we get the idea of what's going on here. There's some other people from other kingdoms. It's not that they didn't drink wine any other time, but this was a time that they showed it off the most. And so this was a high-level responsibility for him in this moment that, again, he's got the king's life in his hands. The king has a party going on, and it says this, Now I had not been sad in his presence. I had not been sad in his presence ever before. He's probably worked for him for years. And he talks about the fact that mostly the king knew me as an upbeat person. I wasn't gloomy. I wasn't, oh, I got to do my job. You know, like a fast food worker who hates their job. That was not him. In fact, it catches the king by surprise. The king says to him, why is your face sad seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. This is nothing but sadness of heart. The king says, this is not just, okay, you know, your favorite chariot racing team lost in Persia. This is something more. This is a deep sadness. This is what many of us would refer to as depression. Do godly people get depressed? You better believe it. Depression is not something that is just, well, you don't have enough faith. 
At times, that may be part of it, but it is not all of it. Sometimes in the church, we can be dismissive about real, true struggles with depression. And we have to be aware that there is a true struggle with this. We see that for four months, he has been in this state of sadness. The state so much that the king notices it for once. And it says this, Nehemiah says this at the very end, then I was very much afraid. Well, what was he afraid of? And it's believed there's two different things. One, he could be afraid that it's like, <gasps> I let him see my emotions. I always hide my emotions. But it is more possible, and I think as you see what happens next, I think that he was more afraid about what he was about to do. Some of you, maybe if you were in sales, you had to do a sales pitch. Or if you're in business, you have to go and you have to make a presentation and you know it's going to be bold. It's going to be scary and you know the anxiety that comes with that. It's a big ask. Maybe you're looking at a big donation you're asking of people. And you know that there's some fear and trepidation because that's about what's going to happen with Nehemiah. He's about to do a big, big ask of Artaxerxes. The next verse goes on, says this. Um, verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, Jerusalem, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now I said Jerusalem. Did Nehemiah you can answer out loud. It's okay here. No. no, this was an easy one, okay? That's interesting. I'll tell you why in a moment, okay? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So in that moment, in that time, here it goes. Okay, God, four months I have been brokenhearted over this. I believe four months he's been planning this mentally, preparing himself. If, if the king ever gives me a moment, here's what I'm going to do. And that moment is on him, whether he wants it or whether he feels ready for it or not. So he prays to the God of heaven. He commits the plan that he's been thinking of for four months. He's been praying over for four months. He's been fasting over for four months. God, this is that moment. May your will be done. Verse five, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, if I have done a good job and you appreciate how I serve you, that you sent me, uh, that you send me to Judah. Once again, does not mention Jerusalem, mentions the region, Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Why would he not mention Jerusalem? Well, here's a little bit of why we speculate he would not. In the book of Ezra, a king who's named Artaxerxes commands that the, the walls that had begun to be built for it to stop because it could be viewed as a threat to his rulership if this city is allowed to build their walls. And so in the book of Ezra, he stopped this. A king's edict goes out to stop the building of the walls. And here Nehemiah is going to that very same king saying, hey, listen, I know a little while back, uh, my friend Ez uh, over there, you told him to stop building the walls. Hey, could you let me go do it instead? He's basically asking the king to go back on what he had previously ruled, previously commanded. It's a big, 
ask what Ezra or Nehemiah is doing. It's a big ask. It's for him to go back and to change exactly what he had done before. But at the heart of this is this. Was Nehemiah courageous in doing this? Thank you to people who said yes. We gotta wake up, people. Here we go. Was Nehemiah courageous in doing this? Yes, yes he was. That took a lot. <laughs> that took a lot of emotion, a lot of prayer, a lot of fasting, a lot of planning, a lot of thinking. You could say that Nehemiah decided that it wasn't good enough for me to just pray that the problem will get fixed. It wasn't enough for Nehemiah to maybe send a check so that the problem would be fixed. Nehemiah had what we call a vision. A vision. And that vision compelled him to not just be on the sidelines saying, hey, I'll pray for you. He says, I'll pray for you and I'll go help you. Action was required. He felt responsibility to do something. What was his job? You can say it out loud. Cupbearer. Was he in construction? No. I don't even know if he had any construction experience. And here he is volunteering to take on and become a foreman of a construction job. That's pretty gutsy. They didn't have Google back then or YouTube for him to watch videos to see how do I build a temple wall. This is amazing what he does. And this is the point this morning. When God stirs up, his children step up. When God stirs up something in the heart of an individual, a big dream, a big vision about something that we can't even see right now, the children of God, his children, step up and do something. They do something because they feel responsible and they feel they must do something. Now, I didn't bring this up here for no reason, and I'm not going to hit it. Oh, there's a nail still there. This is from our old bathroom wall that we had to tear down. This is stud. Don't worry. Um, so uh, here's the deal. Uh, what is this? I just heard five answers. Great. We're off to a good start. How many say wood? How many say a stud? Okay. Um, how many of you are like really nerdy and you're talking about what kind this is? Lumber. There we go. There's lumber. Uh, we could have multiple different answers for this. You know what I didn't hear out of you? I didn't hear you say, what was that? What was that? Oh, two by three. Okay. <laughs> you know what I didn't hear you say? That's a baseball bat. I didn't hear you say, that could be a hockey stick. I didn't hear you say, that could be a spindle and a staircase. I did not hear you say anything that talked about what potential this piece of wood has. And I don't condemn you. I asked you what it was. And most of you answered what it was. What you didn't necessarily answer is what it could be. See, in order to answer what this could be, you have to have a vision. You have to have a knife that you begin to whittle or tools that allow you to begin to shape this into whatever it is that you want to turn this into. It requires vision of what this could be. That is what Nehemiah had was Nehemiah had a vision of what could it be if Jerusalem's walls could be rebuilt. And he wanted to be a part of it because God stirred something up in him that says, this isn't right, something has to be done. Something has to be done. 
When God stirs up, his children step up. Verse 6 goes on in the story and says this, And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, notice that's in parentheses, uh, it's believed that the reason that that's even noted is because it's to say there was a witness there. I didn't just say this was between, you know, he says, he says, this is, there was a witness. <clears throat> so, uh, but uh, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? Now, it doesn't give us that answer, but it's believed it's probably at least 12 months that he was there. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. The king's life is in the hands of Nehemiah as the cupbearer. That's a high-level responsibility. Imagine an American president saying, having a, a member of the Secret Service or all the Secret Service come up and say, hey, we have this project that we need to do back at our parents' house. We're going to be out of commission for 12 months. Are you good with no Secret Service for the next 12 months? That's the equivalent of what's happening here. Is a president going without Secret Service for 12 months? Probably not a good thing. Why on earth would Artaxerxes do this? Because he had found favor in his sight. That's what's amazing about this. Nehemiah had earned such a reputation with this heathen king who didn't even believe in the same God, this godless man, that he's like, okay, 12 months, have at it. Go ahead. I'm going to endanger myself because I appreciate you that much. Little side note here for kids in here and uh, high school and really all of us. This says a lot about what our work ethic should be like. How we should serve a boss, whether they are Christian and even more so if they are not a Christian. You see this all throughout scripture. You see Daniel, same thing. Daniel was basically almost the same thing where he worked himself up again in, in, in the Persian kingdom where he is able to be able to have this level of responsibility and they trusted him. He had such a high reputation even for those that did not follow the God that he followed. As Christians and students, I say this for you. Whenever you finally get a job or if you have a job, serve your bosses better than any of your coworkers. Do the jobs nobody else wants to do. Earn favor by working hard. That's unfortunately something that has been lost in our day and age. Is that somehow you're just supposed to immediately assume you get a paycheck or a, a raise because you showed up. Work and outwork people. My first job, Chick-fil-A. So I was not one of those, uh, you know, at the register all the time. I volunteered to clean a grease trap. Anyone know what the grease trap is in a restaurant? I volunteered to do that because absolutely nobody else wanted to. And it was great, man. I went back, I turned the radio on. No one was going to tell me to speed up or anything. And I had to clean out the grease trap underneath the sink. Disgusting job. Totally disgusting. But it earned favor with the boss. And I wasn't doing it so I got in good with him. I was just doing it because I think that's what I should be doing as a Christian. Work hard and earn favor. Be the one who sticks out because you will do whatever. In verses 7 through 8, which we're not going to take the time to read right now. In verses 7 and 8, Nehemiah spells out a three-step plan that he has. He says, King, if I'm going to do this, you've given me permission now. I'm going to need letters that when I go through other regions, if the leadership stops me, I say, hey, I got my permission slip from the king. So step off, okay? Uh, that's the first thing I need. Secondly, 
is I need a letter written to the head of the construction supply company, their version of Home Depot back then, the one that provided the wood. And then third is I need to be able to get the supplies to be able to build my own house because I'm going to be there a while. I'm committed to this. And lo and behold, Artaxerxes gives him everything he needs. He arrives at Jerusalem. He tours the walls and sees the bad condition that they are in. By the way, the king has appointed him governor of Jerusalem in this time. That's the level of favor he had. He tours these walls. He sees the shambles they're in. He doesn't tell any of the people living in Jerusalem why he's there at first. But we're going to see the verses when he reveals why he is there. Verse 17, he says to the people in Jerusalem, his fellow Jews, he says, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision or embarrassment. He appeals to his kinsmen and says, Hey, you see the shape we're in? Let's get to this. We do not want to be an embarrassment anymore. Verse 18, and I, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah says, God's hand has been upon me, guys. Let me tell you the craziness of answered prayer. There is no other solution for this other than God has given me favor to do this work. He wants this done. Nehemiah did not see this as an opportunity for him to, hey, we're going to build the Nehemiah wall. I want my name on that because I was the one that rebuilt this. He saw this as an opportunity to show God's favor on his people. It was a spiritual matter as much as it was a construction project. It was all about God and the greatness of him. He had a vision that he acted on. He had to do something. And so he does. And it inspired people around him to be on board with this. I have three things quickly as we wrap up that I want to just highlight from these verses. First off is this. Number one is holy disconnect, uh, discontent births vision. Discontent. Holy discontent. You all have had a holy discontent. Something you know that God is bothered by. And therefore, it bothers you. Some of you saw the one movie earlier this year that dealt with some of the human trafficking issues in our world and modern-day slavery, and it bothered you. You want to know why? It bothers God. And it bothered you. That's a holy discontent. Some of you see the conditions that some people live in, and it's the exact same thing where you say, something's got to change. God is not okay with this, and I must do something about it whether it's broken homes, whether it's foster, uh, the foster care system and, and how good or bad it's not doing, and, and uh, uh, maybe it's the exploitation of the poor, maybe it's unreached people groups. Whatever it is, you know God is not for it, and so it burns in you. That's what Nehemiah had. And that holy discontent was where vision came into play, when all of a sudden he began to think, what if I go back? What if I help lead it? I'm no construction guy but I will do something. I will do something. The friction that it causes in you when you think of those items very well may be God moving in you. It very well be him stirring things up in you so that you will act. These feelings were given by God to tell us to act. 
a friend of uh, Beth and mine back in Baltimore, um, she was undergoing cancer treatment. And uh, she had to go to the ER, I think it was at Hopkins um, uh, in Baltimore. And she was sitting in the ER waiting to go in for one of her regular treatments and so on. Uh, and when she was in there, it was winter, uh, and it was a really cold winter that year. Uh, and uh, she looked, and she saw the homeless, as they oftentimes do. They allow the homeless to come into the ER for warmth. But the homeless were there. Most of them were by the doors. And so the doors are opening and closing and opening and closing, and all this cold air is coming in, and they're freezing to death. She's there for a cancer treatment. She went and saw these people freezing. And so she goes up to the desk of the hospital. She's like, can we get blankets for any of these people? They're freezing here. And the hospital said, we're not allowed to do that. She knew this wasn't right. She knew it wasn't right. And it built up a discontent in her soul. Something needs to be done. And so she came up with a vision of what she would do. That's holy discontent, stirring up a vision inside of you. Something must be done about this, and I want to be a part of it. Second is this. Unpursued vision neglects calling. Unpursued vision neglects calling. Unpursued means I don't do anything with it. God's given me this vision. He's given me this this discontent about something, and I don't do anything with it. You very well may be neglecting the calling God has on your life for the discontent he's put in your heart. He may be redirecting you. You may have a career, and he's redirecting you today because of a stirring in your soul that something must be done. Something must be done. Many years ago, I was at Lancaster Bible College serving at Bible Fellowship Church of Ephrata, and a news story broke about a school shooting in a place called Columbine. Now, at the time, I hadn't really thought seriously about youth ministry. I kind of had thought about it. Uh, I had been kicked out of my own youth group. Pastors, you know, right here. I kicked out of my own youth group. And that was about as much as I thought about it. When Columbine happened, some of you know the stories that came out of this, the people that were believers. You know the stories of the people that behind it that did the shooting and the bullying they underwent and just the, the... how horrible an incident this was. And it was why in those moments that I said, I got to do youth ministry. I've been running from it, but I have a heart and a love for teenagers and I want to do something about it. That was the beginning of the stirring that led to so many years in youth ministry. Maybe you have that same kind of stirring. Maybe it's an incident that has stirred you. Don't neglect it because it very well may be from God. What can you live for that's worth dying for? What can you live for that's worth dying for? Third thing is this. People follow vision. People follow vision. Uh, Nehemiah inspired a bunch of people. He didn't just say, here's God's favor and here's my plan. They're like, I'm in. It says they strengthened their hands for work. They weren't builders. We're going to see that next week. They weren't builders, but they knew something had to be done, and they wanted to be a part of what Nehemiah was selling. Next weekend, if I've thought of a person who was a visionary who said something must be done, did it, and people rallied to the cause, next weekend is Martin Luther King weekend. And we all know his famous speech, I Have a Dream, talking about whether you're Catholic, Protestant, black, white, all of these things, that people are just treated equally because at the time it was not happening. 
And this man fills an entire mall in D.C. of people rallying to the cause. And we know how much that changed our culture. But he had a vision. I had a dream. I have a vision of something. And yes, he was a pastor in a church. Not a perfect man by any means, but if you ever get a chance to read letters from a Birmingham jail, I encourage you to do so because it is brilliant. Some of his rationale uh, that is scripturally based as to why he felt that this was worth going after. I have a dream. He inspired people to follow him. And he had inspired people to change things. That is vision. People follow vision. They don't follow nothing. And this means in a church, if we have no direction, if you aim at nothing, you hit it every time. We need to aim for something. And ask for God's favor in it. Don't neglect that. Nehemiah did that. God, I need you in this moment. This is from you. I need you in this. Proverbs 29, 18 says this. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Where there is no prophetic vision, where there is no leadership from God, where there is none of that, the people cast off restraint. They do whatever they want to do. And in other ways that you can translate the words here in the Hebrew is they're discouraged because there is no direction. They just exist. We must be a place of vision. I mentioned my friend who was getting treatment. She could have been thinking about her own treatment and not getting worried about the homeless in the ER she could have gone on to her social media and done a long rant about how horrible Johns Hopkins is and they don't care about the homeless that are in there. She could have done any of that stuff. You know what I mean. But instead, she put it up on Facebook. Homeless are here. They're cold. I need blankets. And so they started to come in. And people started to buy them. She would post whenever there were sales, like $3, you know, uh, for blankets at Walmart. And people would buy clear out Walmart of these blankets and they began to dump them on her and she would take them down. Anytime she took a treatment, she would take a carload of blankets when it was a cold stretch to give out to these people. That was action and it inspired people in our church and in that area. I'll donate blankets. I'm in for that. Is your life inspiring anybody towards anything? My challenge for each of us this morning is this pursue your calling. Pursue your calling. Maybe God has put a wrestle and a holy discontent in your heart about something that forwards the kingdom of God and impacts lives for him and meets modern needs. I don't know what it is, but I am challenging each of you as I close up today. Pursue your calling. Do not ignore it anymore. That may mean a career change. Kids in here, pursue whatever God puts before you. I'll say this to some of our middle and high schoolers. Did you know full-time ministry is actually an opportunity for you to consider, not just a career? It's not the only thing, but I think sometimes we've forgotten that that's an option. Pastoring, mission work. Pray about it now. Pray about what God would want you to do and see where he leads you because you don't know if you pursue the calling he has, where he may take you and what he might do through you. Go on and consider that for some of you adults, maybe just pursuing a calling is to go on a missions trip or to join in a full-time ministry here at church. Whatever it is, do not neglect it. Nehemiah did not neglect his, and it inspired an army to do what God's vision for him was. Let's pray. God, 
As we uh, wrap up just uh, this morning, we thank you for giving a vision for people so many long, uh, a long time ago, 1953, to start a church here. And, and God, we're here, 70, almost 71 years later. We thank you for that vision. We thank you for those that even have come out of this church that have gone and served you overseas. Uh, we thank you for the vision and, and heart and burden you've given them. Lord, for those that have had a holy discontent or a stirring in their soul that is from you, I pray that you would help them to step up in boldness and courage to what you want of them, that they would faithfully follow you no matter what. It, Lord, it may be inconvenient. It may be a career change. It may be moving to a place that they know nothing about, but whatever it is that you stirred in their heart, do not allow them to neglect it. Do not allow them to neglect it. Lord, for our kids in here, for our teenagers in here, I ask for your hand on their life, whether you take them into the professional world or the business world, if you take them into full-time ministry, even now in their young age, stir a fire in them and give them a vision of what you could do through them if they fully surrender their lives to you. And God, may they prepare for it now and not think, I've got a bunch of years. God, we thank you for vision and how you've led so many people in the church and what they've been able to do. And we ask that you would do that in us as a church as well as individually. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. If you would like prayer, you can send your prayer requests into prayer at gfchurch.net and we will pray for you. If you like this message, don't forget to subscribe on the podcast app, Google or Spotify. Give us a follow on Facebook and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you next week.